Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hello, welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. We're here with Kate and Charles Sadler. We're in studio today at our home. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have a purring kitty in the background. So I don't know if she's gonna <laughs> if she's gonna make an appearance in in the audio file. In case you're wondering, that's what that sound is. Right. Yeah. Contentment. Contentment. The sound I know. of contentment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the pets are thrilled to have us home, of course, and no travel. Our one and a half year old has mom and dad in the house every day, all day, every day. Mm-hmm. So that's been a thrill for all involved. And um, yeah, we're just here hoping to put down another good episode with some helpful tips and some things that make your imaginings of the landscape from home a little a little brighter. And uh, whether you're able to get out in your own yard or not, or perhaps are cultivating plants in your apartment, I know it's a little harder to access some of the public spaces. You and I have been able to get out to some remote national forests and Mm -hmm. preserves here in Texas that are somewhat light on traffic. (laughs) Right. Like that might be good to explain people, but that might hold true for what is the visitor centers are not open. Right. So amenities, essentially like uh, restrooms and things like that. So you do, you definitely want to be able to plan for that kind of contingency. And for us, it's, you know, we've been taking car rides to get out and to see the scenery and then if it seems safe to stop we do so and right. and safe for us pretty much means no one's around so. right so it's like somewhat remote national yeah. be a national parks national forests, national preserves so if you're not sure though you can always go to you know the national park service website that's what i looked up to see if mm-hmm. because you know state parks com- county parks here are closed and so you know even if there's a trail you're not really supposed to be on it and so it's just doing that due diligence to make sure you're maybe getting a little break for yourself out in nature, but you're not stressing a system that really is dependent on us, you know, avoiding each other, which right. is what we're ultimately trying to do. So these federal spaces in the U.S., the trails are open. Yes, and they're that's perfectly. Correct. There's almost no. They're so large. Well, thousands at least of as, acres. as of the last time I checked. So right. <laughs> we've done that every like, time we, we we research again. Like two weeks in a row, we've done an yeah. outing that's that was nice. safe. It seemed reasonable. Absolutely. And so you get that fresh air, you get that proximity to all those great trees and understory plants. And it has been a blessing. I mean, by no stretch are we, you know, taking that for granted or assuming it's that way for everyone everywhere. Because, of course, we used to both of us lived in apartments in, you know, Manhattan and Brooklyn mm-hmm. one time, independent of each other. But those parks are a lifeline getting out to, to prospect in Central Park or Riverside and Right. And like off hours, some people have explained that going very early. If it's a park, you wouldn't want to go when it's dark generally. But you go very early in the morning. Uh, It probably is not. I remember having that experience in Brooklyn one time back when I lived there. And I did running. And I would run very early. And there's an hour where where you have your dog off the leash. Oh, yeah. It was maybe before 7 a.m. or... I mean, it wasn't in the summer. The sun comes up at five five thirty in the morning. So mm-hmm. I was out there maybe six something, and there's almost I was famous for his port portals. So it's be a covered bridge, and then you go through a tunnel, and then there's an expansive meadow. That's like a theme he often would use. And so I went through this tunnel, and there were 
I don't know if it was 100 dogs, but it was it was more dogs than I could count. It was probably 50 dogs that were running in just pure joy in this meadow, and people were chatting, and, and the sun wasn't quite up fully. It was quite magical. <laughs> <laughs> I recall a similar experience around the Sheep's Meadow in Central Park, where, but it was because I had no idea that that was the case, that you could have the dogs off leash at that hour, and so it was just seeing them for the first time with that, you know, effusive <laughs> doggy joy kind of running around. Right. So, you know, there's an illustrator who's illustrated for the New Yorker, Mark Ulrichson, I believe. And he's illustrated that. I mean, he sort of caught, captured that mm. joy of dogs <laughs> in, in the New York City parks. <laughs> well, it's interesting that we're kind of taking a trip down memory lane here because part of today's episode is all about Well, it's really about the senses, but how evocative sensory memory can be. So the mm. thought of being in the park when they're cutting the grass and having that smell or the, you know, the sound of the dogs playing and the, the collars jingling and <laughs> bounding around. And, and so we're going to talk about how to, you know, focus on that, create that in your own space. And today is about trying to capture that sensation in our landscape through the use of, of plants and other materials in order to create that sense of being present and being meditative and, and accessing those positive memories that we have from other experiences in the landscape. So that's really, really what today is all about. And we hope that some of the discussion even evokes memories and sensation for you mm -hmm. as we go. And we did want to follow up a little bit on our conversation on roses Uh, that was a great episode. We hope you gathered some information from that. It's probably a topic we'll revisit in mm -hmm. some form, especially as we get listener questions. We can always add specifics to a listener question episode. But you had a thought about companion plants oh, right. to the rose, like what goes well with it. Right, because a rose, it's amazing. It's dynamic. It's captivating, but it is limited. So a companion plant is going to more or less keep it company. So an example would be the structure that, that an evergreen would give. So like a boxwood hedge, a yew hedge. There's many others, like depending on what part of the world you live in. So plants that can offer visual, like visual structure. That could be a backdrop, or it could be a low hedge, or it could be a topiary at intervals. So evergreen structure, which is going to give the rose, if the roses are not blooming, could be before they start, or maybe they're, it's between periods of blooming, that there's still that structure. And then a very popular companion plant would be a clematis. That would, if there's structures, clematis like to climb, generally, they could, they could trail along the ground too. But having a, structures that the roses climb on, so some garden architectural elements, and then the clematis can climb right alongside the rose, The benefit of that is that there are many types of clematis that bloom at different times, different flower colors, some, some are fragrant. So when the rose is not performing, the clematis can be performing. So there's still something of interest. It, when they're both, if they happen to be both blooming at the same time, then you have that sort of reciprocal vibration of different flower shape, and that can add a lot of interest. And it can be at eye level, where like a lot of roses are going to be from waist down, unless it's a climber. So the clematis can be on a structure where it's practically at eye level. Great, great suggestion. So sort of practicing what we preach here also, 
we are getting, because we moved last summer and then have been slow, slow to get our veg patch going. And yet we can see the overarching importance of this, whether it's a crisis or not, uh, you know, owning, taking sort of ownership of the landscape in terms of food production on a micro scale, Mm -hmm. I think could have positive benefits in so, so many ways. So we are getting our beds and our soil. And of course, with all that's going on in the world today, everything pretty much happens by delivery. And thank goodness for those folks who are there seeing to it that we can get some items by delivery. But that might include plants. And so how does ordering plants by mail work? I mean, can they survive? I found out you could order little chickens, chicklets, not chicklets, what they call chicks, chicks by mail. (laughs) That I'm not sure about, but apparently it works. So I don't know. If you have any input on that at all as a listener, you could share with us. Absolutely. It's just something I found out. And so I'm just wondering, sending living things through the mail, is it recommended or should you be paying delivery fee for your local nursery to come bring things over? Okay, good question. I guess I've had a, you know, been a lifelong gardener. So even as a child, we would get things in the mail. I can remember it was a nursery. I think they've been absorbed by a larger fruit nursery, but it was called Miller Nursery. It was in the Finger Lakes of New York State. And they specialize in all types of fruit and nuts and all kinds of edible items. And I remember getting deliveries of bare root trees. They were walnut trees. I remember as a child, that was very exciting. It came, it was almost like a pencil. (laughs) And are those, I think you've pointed out those trees. They're still in the neighborhood. So when we visited your hometown together, you're like, we planted those trees. So talk about a beautiful memory. I mean, the the planting and the, and then seeing something grow over time. So special. So the, I mean, to play, I guess, critic or, you know, just from my own experience, what works, what doesn't. So to order a regular old potted shrub or tree from the mail, you pay a more or less like a, a, a giant premium. You can imagine to ship soil in a pot, and then the, even a small plant is going to take up a lot of room. So that, and the quality, my experience is not as high if you go that route. So if you had no other options and you wanted to order, which in some ways we don't <laughs> right, right now necessarily. I mean, there are companies that only do, it's like a direct response company. They do mail order, that's their primary business. So in pots, it would be generally, would you want to go with the smallest pot possible because you're going to pay a premium to ship soil, which is, which is sort of crazy. So that's the one component. Then there are, it could be a regional or local company that would ship or deliver plants to you, shrubs, trees, bare root, in pots. So that, my experience is the quality is probably going to be higher for that because it's not going to travel as far they're probably not doing the giant volume. They're not sending out millions of, or you know, hundreds of thousands of plants. So the quality probably would be higher. What works really well is bare root plants. And so that's like where you're getting a shrub or a tree. It could be a grapevine. It could be roseberry, uh, raspberry canes. So that's sensitive to the climate. So you're not going to be shipping a bare root plant when it's hot. So depending on the climate, it's like winter or early spring. And I've had good success with that, but that I've had hostas in the mail and fruit trees and pine trees, like the, like the whole range of plants, which turned out quite small. And so when you get those, you have to be prepared to almost immediately do something, you know, plant them. Or if it's still 
winter, it's still very cold, then having a plan, like having it in a, let's say, a heated garage or unheated garage, somewhere where those, when the plants are bare root, they're dormant, but they're still sensitive to freezing and thawing and just having a plan. And there's lots of good information, like the better suppliers of these items could walk you through that. Great. Okay. So I just figured it was probably on the mind of some of our listeners if they hadn't ever tried this option before. So that's a really good resource. And hopefully that'll help some of our listeners continue to do some of this work throughout the season, if the, even if they're ordering by mail. You know, we've had just in our own experience, uh, it might hold true for plants. We've ordered outdoor furniture recently from some of it was from a traditional source that, that ships all the time. And then others were local furniture suppliers that don't normally deliver because of the current health crisis. They did deliver. It was, there was a cost for it. And so that may hold true with plants. If you're a business and you're, it's always cash and carry and that doesn't work anymore. And there's intermediaries that do delivery. So that might also be available for plants. Well, and all of that, I think, helps keep the <laughs> the economy going in a, in some small way. If you're sort of, if you have the resources and you feel like you can make that investment, then there's no reason sort of not to kind of take advantage of the new adaptations that these local economies are making. And an old favorite is uh, the Arbor Day Foundation. And so those, uh, that's an, it might ship to Canada, I'm not sure, but it's definitely the United States and they have. They're generally quite small trees, but some of them it get larger. So it's those I think are bare root, or it could be like in a very like in a pint or a quart size. And so those I've had good luck with. Those are pretty good quality, and you're supporting an organization which supports planting of trees. So of course, podcasts are purely auditory medium. You're listening to us. You might see our logo. You may come over to our Facebook page and see some of our social media posts, <laughs> photos and things. But, you know, there are at least <laughs> at least three other senses that I just did I didn't just mention. You know, the sound, the the smell, the taste and the touch of the garden. And these are things that we can't always convey via podcast, but if I were to mention, you know, brushing sage, a sage plant that's sort of mm -hmm. silvery and then sniffing kind of the the leaves and the oil that's left on your fingers. I right. think a lot of people would instantly sort of remember what that smells like or pulling off a little mint leaf and kind of crushing it up in your fingers and then holding it to your nose or maybe even tasting it, although it doesn't have the sweetness, it has that sort of cooling effect. Mm -hmm. So there's all, you know, a way to sort of ground ourselves in the present moment mm -hmm. if we're willing to give ourselves over to our senses and kind of take ourselves out of the thinking mind <laughs> and put ourselves really into these spaces and that the senses evoke. So is there some history to sensory gardens? Was this always a priority? Or maybe it was a priority that people didn't even think about. You know, the sound of running water was just sort of woven into the landscape. And you'd grow herbs for your cooking. So, of course, you'd have fragrance in the landscape. What, what is your sense of how this developed? Well, I mean, it's not, I don't have like all like the full research right in front of me. But the idea of recuperating in a medical setting, it was a sanitarium. And those were 
landscape grounds, basically, where you would be able to walk and be and have fresh air. And actually, Olmsted, some of his work, he designed sanitariums. I think the Adirondack chair actually comes from that oh. idea of people fleeing the city and getting up to the Adirondacks for, I mean, fresh air. Again, there was sort of a pervasive issue with tuberculosis in those days oh, where right. folks didn't even know what the culprit was that was causing sort of respiratory issues. So nature and the landscape have long been a really important partner in human health and healthcare. So fresh air is certainly an important concept. What about designing gardens that really were not primarily focused on things that we could see? I mean, we mentioned in our color episode that not everybody sees the same colors and Mm -hmm. not everybody sees the same way at all or hears the same way at all. So what was going on that allowed gardens to develop with a more sort of accessible and inclusive mindset? So all the, my beloved Brooklyn time that I spent there, I became familiar with one of the gardens within the garden called the Fragrance Garden, which dates back to 1955. It was the first garden in the country designed to accommodate people with visual impairments, though it's multi-sensory approach appeals to all visitors, particularly children, because it's it's a touch garden, which is very special. But it's instead of don't touch, it's do touch, please touch. And very soft plants like lamb's ear, also called stackies, where it's a very soft silvery foliage. And then all of the different herbs, rosemary, lavender, there's the uh, lemon-scented geranium and all the other different fragrant geraniums that have a I guess it would be an essential oil. So just by touching it, that it's a beautiful, delicious fragrance. So what specifically are some of the plant groups that you might recommend that would fit in nicely in an aesthetic sense that might kind of fall under each of the maybe lesser thought of senses? The Brooklyn Botanic Garden, that's, that garden is actually it's broken into four sections. Scented foliage interesting textures, fragrant flowers, and kitchen herbs, which is pretty sensible. There's some plants that, where the touch is quite interesting. They may or may not have a fragrance. Well, and to be fair, I mean, you touch pretty much every plant we encounter. As long right. as we know for sure it's not poison ivy or poison oak or something else we shouldn't be fondling, there is essentially a texture to every plant. Mm-hmm. And so you may not have to go too far out on a limb if you just want to start incorporating your own sensory experience in the garden. But you mentioned lamb's ear. Are there any other plants that have like a sandy texture or a mottled texture that oh, you might right. recommend? You know, it's a type of viburnum. You know, a common name in the U.S. is Korean spice bush. It's, it's, I think it's derived from Korea. So that, it's similar to a lilac, but it's even, even like a spicier, stronger. That's generally in spring. The leaf of a, of a viburnum is generally pretty sandy. You can feel the grit. It's like a cat's tongue. You know, there's that sort of grittiness. So the texture's interesting, and it's very fragrant. It's, I would say it's a little sharper fragrance than a, than a lilac. And it's, it tends to be deer tolerant. But there are quite a few. Michael Durr has a list who's a great plant, plants person and writer about it. He has a, he has a list of deer tolerant viburnum, which are which is available. And that is pretty accurate. And the fragrant viburnums, the deer tend to stay away from, now depending on how hungry the deer are in your area. Now we were on a walk the other day and encountered 
one of the most delightful plants, <laughs> shy plants. And basically, it's a plant that when you touch it, it closes, the leaves close up in a way. So it's like it doesn't want to be touched. It kind of curls in on itself. What's mm-hmm. it, what is that called? I believe it's Albiza, which is also called Persian silk tree. It's also called Mimosa. Great. So is that something you could just sort of plunk in your yard and little kids could go up and touch it? Or is it hard to cultivate? It's a plant that's more or less like naturalized. Like when we see it in Texas, it's just growing on its own. It's probably somewhat invasive depending where in the country. I don't see it in the nursery trade. It's not widely available. It's my experience from working in a good part of the country. So it's, it's out there in nature. It's still probably possible to buy it. There'd be some areas maybe you couldn't buy it. No, it would require a little further research. So the funny thing about touch is that, yes, you can pick out some plants that are especially delightful for this sense. But of course, the the key here is to just start feeling your plants, mm-hmm. touching the bark of the tree, feeling the stems, the leaves. And again, for the most part, if you're not planting poisonous plants, that should be a fairly safe activity. Is that correct? Right. Like the amount of plants, like over my career of like more or less learned thousands and thousands of plants. And so one of the ways I help remember that is by touch. And that, let's say, uh, there are oaks that look just like, like a holly. Like the leaves are almost identical, but the touch would be different. So that's like a way I get more information in my mind. You know, like a, I'm recording, okay, it looks the same, but this feels like more leathery or it's, or it's prickly or it's like a thin leaf. So the touch, it's enjoyable, and it helps you also remember. And when there's a fragrance, then it's, you know, it really takes you away. Or I guess brings you into the moment. However, maybe it takes you away from, from wherever your mind is working on, into the moment. Well, we've talked about edible gardens before. So certainly just planting, you know, veg, berries, herbs is a good way to incorporate taste into the landscape. Nothing tastes quite as good as like a fresh tomato off the vine that you grew yourself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe there are some other things to cultivate that have an unexpected flavor. So one example would be wintergreen. Oh, right. Which was something that we planted. We were reading a story that had mentioned wintergreen and Mm -hmm. and it isn't a mint, although it has that kind of cooling effect. It's a very special fragrance of its own right it grows in the wild yeah it's it's more or less like a ground cover i believe it's evergreen it's very low i mean it's might only be like one or two inches would be the height of the plant and it creeps along the ground you see it in foresty areas like throughout the upper new york state and new england i've come across it so thinking through some of the flavors you might want to bring into the garden that are not maybe the standard. And uh, when Mm -hmm. we lived out in California, there was a yellow flowered plant that had these stems that you could pick off and they were very sour and we would call it sour grass. (laughs) I have no idea. I am so sorry. I don't have any idea what the actual plant name is, but I mean that we would like, it grew like a weed and we would basically like harvest it and be out there. Of course, you have to be very, very careful if you're foraging you know, plants you don't know. Basically, if you don't know what you're eating, don't eat it. Mm-hmm. But the intention to cultivate some some nifty flavors might be a good idea. And just having, you know, if you're not out buying chewing gum, but you have a little bit of mint that you can kind of work on. I think right. it's just kind of a nice way to get taste into our lives more organically, so mm-hmm. to speak. 
and more consistently so that there's like fun flavors kind of going on. Do you have any other recommendations as far as that goes? The fragrant geranium, that is really a special plant that it's very tough, durable. I don't know if it's edible, but but the fragrance is just sublime. It's so fragrant. It does well on patios and planters. It can handle it very hot and sunny. Well, and we have star jasmine coming across the fence from our neighbors, which is another one that is just, you know, we spoke about roses last week and roses, if you sort of get really close or there's enough of them, you can get some nice fragrance, but something like star jasmine is just like (laughs) this cloud of fragrance Mm -hmm. that sort of washes over you. Any other fragrant flowers or herbs that you would recommend for the landscape? You know, a plant that I would say it's underutilized. It's not a secret, but clethra, which is I think summer spice is its common name. You'll see it growing in woodland settings, somewhat somewhat wet woodland settings. The straight species is like a white bottle brush, and it has the leaf looks a little like a rhododendron or a laurel. And there's some of the cultivated varieties. The flower comes in pink. That is very intoxicating. Having a grouping of those fragrant plants, like the Korean spice bush, this plant, where there, it's quite a spicy fragrance. There's a whole component of spicy, fragrant plants, which wouldn't be everybody's cup of tea, but it's quite nice. And the gardenia, that's like a popular here in the South. That's a standard. I would say in terms of sound, it's a little similar to the idea of touch, that it's a sense that is maybe underutilized just in its in everyday living, that we're not necessarily aware of all the sounds that our landscapes are making. So of mm-hmm. course there's bird song and the rustling of leaves, but but even the sound of certain seed pods kind of rattling together, or there may be sounds in the landscape that you want to listen for first before you implement the wind chime or the, you know, mm-hmm. the deer scare. Oh, like <laughs> in a Japanese, garden, in a Japanese garden. garden. Which is a water, it's a bamboo structure, which when it fills with water, then it, it slaps down and, and knocks on a rock. Which is very, very cool. And, and I do think that there are, you know, layers of sound that one can incorporate, but it's the listening first that kind of invites us to evaluate what the, what the sounds are. Are there any plants you know of that make special sound or any way that you would incorporate that in the, in the garden? In the grass family, so think of ornamental grasses where the seed heads rustle. And the, the taller ornamental grasses, there's quite a bit of volume to those. And so, so those can rustle even during the growing season. Then when they go dormant, they tend to be drier. So then they rustle even more. Bamboo is in the grass family. So that would be, there's many poems and haikus written about the wind going through the bamboo grove. Bamboo, it can be invasive. So having it in planters or in a I think of mint the same way. Oh, right. (laughs) There are these great sort of fragrant, aromatic, gorgeous sounding choices, but you do have to be careful. You don't necessarily want to overdo it. Some of the plants that hold their leaves are not an evergreen, but they'll hold them for quite a while, are called tardily deciduous. So oak trees, there are some oaks that are evergreen, but some they're not, like the white oak, the red oak, the pin oak. Those will hold their leaves through a good part of the winter. And so those leaves will be rustling in the winter. That can be nice. The beech will do that, the hornbeam to some extent. And I guess just getting out in your landscape and experiencing, just being observant of sounds you might see on a hike or in a preserve. 
Now, we are mindful that not everyone has a large patch of, of land to cultivate in these ways. And so we did have an episode on indoor plants and there are entire podcasts on mm-hmm. indoor plants, to be honest, because it's such a rich topic and certainly relates to many, many of us in the population, whether you're an apartment dweller or have, have a backyard, bringing the plants inside is such a great part of this. So you you mentioned when we were researching this episode that unfortunately, some of these components may not be as widely available in the indoor plant world. Right. Well, you don't have wind indoors generally. So, right. So the senses, you think of the five senses. So touch would definitely still be active sight. Like gardenias can be grown in a pot. So there are some plants that could translate, and those, are, those would be fragrant, to indoors. It may be a little more limited. There's a popular, it could be outdoors, but it's indoors in many climates, the Rex begonia. That's the begonia where the coloring on the leaf is, comes in a multitude of patterns and shapes and colors. So there's, for the indoor plants, the environmental conditions are less demanding in some cases. So it's not fighting all the elements. So the plant themselves could be more intricate and ornate. So that would be a direction to go. If you might not be able to have as many of the five senses indoors. Although I I imagine if you do the, if you allow the senses to orient your attention Mm -hmm. in the same way, as you said, you can still be touching the plants and (laughs) interacting with them and getting the fans going to kind of get the breeze going in there that you might be able to have some of that. Or in small water features, you can have those in your home and Mm -hmm. and things like that. Now the citrus tree we were talking about for our own patio, we were doing a little design charrette of potted. So potted citrus, depending on your climate, that could be an indoor plant also. And so the citrus, the orange blossoms are very fragrant. That's quite sublime. Anything we should add for our listeners? We hope that this episode has helped sort of ground you in the five senses to think a little bit about what you might incorporate into your own landscape or appreciate just a little differently and welcome feedback and ideas, but uh, anything we haven't covered that you wanted to touch on today. Some of these sort of landmark sensory gardens, there's one in the Brooklyn Botanic Garden we mentioned. There's also one, it's called the Bueller Enabling Garden, which is at the Chicago Botanic Garden. So both of those, they're actually very similar. So the, the paving is very important. So if it's for people of all different abilities, mobilities, so for sensory, being able to access the plants, getting up close to them, that's quite important. So just really considering, so both of these gardens, there's a circulation pattern, there's raised planters. So knowing who's, who's your audience, if your audience is yourself, thinking of how you're going to enjoy it, water, touch, that it's easily accessible. Those are, so really framing it, that the senses can access it. So these same fragrant plants, if it was out in a traditional setting where it's at, let's say the plant's like 36 inches from the ground, it's pretty far. You have to bend over to touch that. So depending if what your mobility is, you might not be able to access it. So having plants and planters, that can add or raise beds that can make it a little more accessible depending who your audience is. Great recommendation. So what is the design principle that kind of uh, equates to what we've been talking about? So the design principle of the week is a hierarchy. So you can imagine from top to bottom, it could be a pyramid, you think of a hierarchy. 
Well, and it's uh, kind of like the hierarchy of the senses. We we prioritize uh, sight so much that it's almost to the exclusion of the other senses. We don't cultivate them unless for some reason we're required to. So again, going out and listening and touching first is that as allowing those to have a, a different place in the hierarchy is kind of what we're suggesting here. Like that could be an exercise actually of experiencing whether it's your own landscape, public park, a garden, and just focusing on one sense and and then going through the space, really attending to that one sense. So from resource digitalsynopsis.com, they explain visual hierarchy is the arrangement and presentation of design elements and order of their importance. It influences the order in which the human eye perceives the information that's being displayed. In the way it's like going back to the program, that it's making sure that in Chicago and in Brooklyn, those design spaces, they're designed in such a way that the senses, the people visiting them can access that information. If they didn't do that, it could be the most beautiful, fragrant, the best kinetic, the best everything, and maybe it would be out of reach. So the hierarchy in those gardens is that, that the senses can access it, that you can get right up close and touch it, hear it, smell it, feel it. The uh, Brooklyn Botanic Garden, that fragrance garden, there's a raised wall and it's an oval. So it's you're more or less going in an oval circle. And back in 1955, there was, uh, which is still there, it's a Braille. So it, you, can, you can say this is, you can, re- someone that, that would read Braille could be touching and experiencing the scent of the fragrant geranium and then also reading what it is. Great. All right. Well, that's a nice spirit to kind of bring into this show, the idea of accessibility, of of being present where we are, of getting that richness that maybe is a little overwhelmed by all of the thinking that may or may not be going on in your brain right now, um, depending on how the day goes. I know it's sort of each day is a little different as we progress through this experience together. And we hope you're able to get into the landscape in one form or another, whether that means spending time with your house plants or your own patch of garden or to a national forest, safely and serenely, and um, wishing all of our listeners just the best. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.